So I don't remember the incident at all because I had a traumatic brain injury and anybody that knows what a traumatic brain injury, I, I lost my memory. So as I'm lying there in a pool of blood with my life and soul leaving my body, the next thing that happens is I see my father. And I touched my head and I could feel my brain and it felt like a broken hard boiled egg. But I could also I could also sense and feel that I was dying. I could feel my life and my soul leaving my body. You're listening to the ATL Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. This is the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. I'm Joe King. I'm with my partner, Sergeant Josh Hertel. And it's an honor to welcome today's guest, um, his his story is just incredible of strength and, and recovery, and um, I want everybody to hear this, and there's not anybody that's going to hear this that is not going to feel the strength of a first responder. He started DPD in 96. He's worked at Southeast Patrol, Northwest Patrol. He's been an FTO at Northwest Patrol. He's worked in various investigative units on the department, such as family violence, capers, vice, child exploitation, and financial crimes. He promoted to sergeant, and now he currently works at the North Central Patrol Division. I want to welcome ATL Chairman Sergeant Ed Lujan. Sorry, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Joe and Josh, for having me. So, Ed, I've known you since the academy. You're actually a, a class ahead of me, and both of us went out to Southeast whenever we graduated. You graduated before me, and I remember you worked deep nights. Am I correct for most of the, the early on? Oh yeah, those were the good old days. There's nothing like Southeast Patrol. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. And then you and I have always been friends because we're, we're also Star Wars nerds. And we, gravita- we gravitated towards each other over that. And, yeah, know. I'm a big science fiction fan. Hey, so. me too. I remember, yeah, you and I have a, both have collections of, of all that crap. And, you know, that's okay. Um, you moved here from El Paso and you have a degree in kinesiology. 
what brought you to Dallas? Was it just this job or? Well, back back, uh, in uh, 95, you know, I was teaching back home in El Paso and uh, they had a job fair up here in Dallas. And so I came up here and this is where you actually actually had to fill out an application in person with a pen. So it was up in Plano. And at that moment when I was filling out the application, my pen ran out of ink. So the table next door was the Dallas Police Department and I asked to borrow their pen. And they said, well, come and talk to us. I said, well, you know, I'm not, I don't know anything about law enforcement. I've never taken any criminal justice classes. I said, well, if you come and talk to us, you know, we'll, we'll teach you everything. It's a great job. And we got the best pension in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. know where that goes. But. So you, you basically got, you got here because of a pen that ran, ran out of ink. And it, it's funny how fate works in yeah, <laughs> but I will tell you, I've, I've had a great career, so I wouldn't change anything. No, you've had an amazing career, and you've very well traveled uh, just from the experiences uh, working different divisions, and also with all that investigative experience. I, I mean, I, I work up in legal, and I I see everybody's cases, and I know which which unit has the heavier case load and and which has the lightest. And you've worked in the heaviest case load with family violence, but then also the more paperwork extensive unit with financial crimes and child exploitation too. I, I just, I just can't even imagine, uh, the rigors on that. Yeah. You know, I remember calling you quite a bit for financial crimes. We used to call you all the time, kind of lean on you a lot. You were always there no matter what the hour time of day. So I know you're well versed in a lot of investigative experience. I'm sure that has a lot, a lot of pull also from what you've seen over the years, maybe not necessarily in financial crimes, but child exploitation and so on and so forth. So, Well, you know, i got to give credit to all, all, all the my peers out there and my trainers. You know, you uh, they, one of the first things they tell hey, learn as much as you can, and if you have an opportunity to go somewhere, take it. Uh, it's going to be challenging, but, you know, you, you learn from there and then just try to help other officers. How old are you right now, Ed? I will, I'm going to be 50 years old in a couple months. Okay. What was your favorite investigative uh, unit and also the most challenging? My favorite by far has to be the Northwest Investigative Unit. I was there just a little over seven years, and during that time I built some relationships with some great guys. Uh, Most of them have moved on and retired. Uh, One of the big things that I liked about it most is we had 10-hour days. We worked 10-hour days, so... Had uh, I was off three uh, three days out of the week, and uh, and at that moment, that's kind of where the doors opened because I, I learned a lot. Uh, they moved uh, aggravated robberies back to the station, so I volunteered to do that, and I did that for a couple of years. So, but by far, uh, Northwest Investigative was my favorite unit, and the most challenging would actually be the Financial Investigations Unit, you know, because uh, trying to catch. A person that's stealing somebody's identity and uh, these scams is one of the hardest to investigate because you, they're, they're unknown, they're ghosts. And you as a detective have to discover who this person or persons are that are stealing money from mostly the elderly. So, Yeah, I, I've combed through all y'all's paperwork and how extensive uh, multiple pages of bank records and videos and there's a lot to it, and that's honestly that's why the statute of limitations for that type of offense is usually seven to ten years, and because 
it takes that long to even find out something has, has happened, and then it takes even longer to investigate and put together a case on, on something like that. You know, we uh, y'all have a really good – the financial crimes unit's really good. they got some good folks over there. And going back to your Northwest uh, investigative uh, days, they still have a pretty older – seasoned veteran group over there at that at that property crimes unit uh from dante to uh to kevin jancy i mean they, they've got some they got some old seasoned detectives over there did you work with that's who you worked with when you were there or, or well no them? kevin kevin came after i did and then uh dante was coming in when i was leaving to family violence so but uh the only one that's there that i actually helped train was uh rick waller so he's yeah. a yeah he's been mm-hmm. around forever and I think he's getting close to leave. Yeah, they, they but they do have a good season group, and and I never have, I don't have any problems with that group. There's other units that that had the they don't have the tenure on as though as that as those detectives, but yeah, they're they're pretty top notch. You know what's funny is uh, you mentioned that being one of your one of your favorite places, and that's kind of. It's not comical in a sense. I know when you're in patrol, you work so hard to get out of patrol. At certain times, some people love patrol and they stay there their whole career. But it's funny how you, when you look back at your career and you you go and you think back, you know, the, my my best times was at Southeast. You know, we had a blast on Third Watch doing stuff there, and it's always funny how it goes back to the substations, eventually away from what you were doing before. So I think that's no. That's and if I had to pick, stories. you know, if I had to pick mm-hmm. to go to a substation, it'd be Southeast because you know there's nothing like home. You know, I tell people. You know, once you move on and and find your career path, uh, you always think about the first day at work, and it'll it'll be that station that you got assigned to. So it is fun going back there, seeing all the pictures and stuff. Is real. <laughs> I mean, if you were there for any great length of time, then it's always fun to go back. You're probably on a wall somewhere, so it's pretty funny. Yeah, but, probably something I drew somewhere is so on somebody's <laughs> melter. But yeah, that that station is magical. I had to go there. Uh, you know, I spent almost 20 years there, and I had to go to the station recently to drop off a, a sissy officer foundation check for an, in, an injured officer, and it, I did get a an eerie but calm feeling going back into that place because, you know, nothing's changed. No. But, I don't know, it was, it was a good feeling. It made me miss it, uh, but I've got a lot of war stories from that place and a lot of fun and a lot of frustration, um, but... Yeah, that's definitely my home home as well. And if I was to go back out to patrol, it would be I would go back there. Um, Ed, when you when you left financial crime, it was because you promoted to sergeant. Correct. Right? Okay. And then when you left uh, financial crimes, you went to North Central. North Central Fourth Watch. Okay. So it's kind of like deep nights. Okay. You get off at three in the morning. And what do you actually do there now? So now I was selected to, uh, I'm the supervisor for the community engagement at North Central. So I am the neighborhood police officer, uh, okay. supervisor. Do you have to attend all the town hall meetings? and? Well, if they ask us to, you know, I, I'm, I have three council members uh, that are in my district, 11, 12, and 13. And, uh, but, you know, we're, we're very busy up north. Uh, a lot of crime watch meetings, a lot of events. Right now, the big push is for backpacks. Uh, try to uh, collect as many backpacks as we can to give them to uh, you know kids that re- really need them. Right. Where, if you want to talk about that program for a second, please do, uh, so people can hear it, and uh, we could probably get some donations or, uh, or 
you never know who's listening. Yeah, so right now we're, so the, the city, it's actually a city uh, event. So they were promoting uh, any school supplies, especially backpacks, and they can be dropped off at any substation uh, from police headquarters to the north central where I work or southeast. And um, all these are all donations. And what's going to happen next week is uh, they actually have the mayor's backpack uh, giveaway at Fair Park. So everything we collected, we're going to be going going there. The chief, uh, Chief Garcia, also has another event that's coming up this Monday that he's going to be giving away backpacks and school supplies. So right now that's our big push is uh, the backpacks and school supplies for the kids going back to school. DISD does start Monday? Or is it- just, there's there's different schools, you know. Okay, that it's, not start, just, yeah. it's not just DISD. Okay, great. No, I like that. Um, during your time at North, North Central, I'm sure that was a big culture shock for you going to that patrol from where you started, uh, going from southeast to northwest, and then going to North Central. It's a different it's a different part of the city, and different. There's not actually nicer places to eat, and and uh, and a lot of more friendly when they see a uniform. They're a lot more friendly. Is that something that you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely different because you know you you when you ask for the bill, somebody said, "Hey, they already picked it up." Or when I mean, just different places. I, I've never heard "thank you so much for what you all do," and that's thanking the police department. And that's it's awesome. It's great to hear that because you know I know more people are for us than against us. Uh, I get that, uh, but it's just it's good to hear it from a complete stranger. Oh yeah, no. You can't get enough thank yous on this job. I mean, and we don't get that many, but when we do, it feels incredible. Whether it's somebody saying thank you just for while you're eating coming up and thank you for service, thank you for what you do for us, thanks for protecting us, or we get a accommodation from a supervisor. Uh, the external accommodations are the best. Some, some Something you did, you don't even think about when you're doing it. Then all of a sudden your supervisor comes to you and says, hey, some." somebody wrote you up for something that's doesn't happen a lot when it comes to official commendation, but, but it is nice to see. Yeah. And I try to do that now as a supervisor, I, I try to write accommodations for officers for incidents or the way they take care of their business. Uh, and, uh, cause that, that goes a long way, you know, again, they're not asking for it, but you know, when they go beyond of what a normal officer would do, uh, you know, it, it makes me proud that there's officers out here that are, that, you know, what they signed up for is helping people. Okay. Uh, I just want to welcome in one of our uh, producers to the podcast, mm-hmm. Randy Aguilar. He just joined us. He's going to sit in. Hey, um, how you doing? Hey, how you doing, Randy? Good. And you, you know, when I, when I was trying to think of ideas for this podcast, I have to admit that you inspired me with your story, okay? You and you and I and, and, and Josh and uh, some others from the Sissy Officer Foundation, we went to a three-day training up in Frisco. And Dr. T put it on. It was the uh, the first, uh, the, peer assist, the peer support training. Yeah, the resiliency. Uh, training. Yeah, the resiliency yeah. training. And they had a panel of, of 10 different first responders. And I believe you let it off. Right, you were the first one to go, and I knew about your story, and uh, but I never heard it from you. And then, and then hearing, hearing the radio traffic uh, that night, a little clip of that, 
uh, and then hearing your story of, of recovery, well, first off, the inc- incident as you remember it, because I'm going to let you tell a story, and because um, I want everybody to hear, hear it and hear its power, but also just the recovery that you had to go through physically and mentally, and it really kind of embodied what that whole three-day training was about, of listening to you and listening to all these other first responders who had, they all had, everybody had a different story, but they were all engaging. I mean, uh, we had a sergeant with Dallas PD that was nearly killed on duty, all the way to a, an officer that worked at a police department out in West Texas that had only eight people on the whole department. Of his, it told, he told his story of survival. And when I was listening to your story and looking around the room at all the jaws dropping, I mean, it was pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, especially when we play the, the audio uh, you really, especially being a police officer, whether it doesn't matter what first responder you're in, but especially us as police officers, hearing the uh, screaming on the radio, uh, you know, for Code 3 cover, it uh, it really draws you back to a lot of different incidents. I mean, for me, when I listen to that, it, it not only sucked me into yours, but it, it brought back a lot of memories of different things, you know, especially like July 7th and so on and so forth, just hearing the radio traffic. But that really draws you into that and kind of reminds you real quick as to, how powerful that incident had to be because we see a lot of horrific things and some people react different to them but when you have a grown man on the radio screaming you know what's on the receiving end of that is is not good for us to respond in that fashion because we respond to so many different things that are very critical and uh, some people have a different radio voice but most are pretty they're very similar in nature as far as how, how they respond to it but uh yeah, is there, uh, can you take us back to that day and just, uh, you want to roll with this? Yeah, I want to play a little audio clip of, um, of the radio traffic that Josh is talking about. The, you know, I, I, I heard it the day that you spoke at the, at the training, and you said that that was the, the first or second time you've heard that since the incident? The second time. The second time. You know, uh, it's a long it's a long clip because it went on a while. It takes people don't realize how long it takes to get cover when there's something going on like that. And uh, but it, it takes a while, and the radio traffic's uh, pretty lengthy. Here's a small clip of it of what um, went over the radio that night uh, on November eighth in 2015 at that uh, at that club on Northwest Highway. back what does that do for you it brings chills but like you said earlier you know you think about the officers that uh, have passed 
you know, because all, all of us have lost some officers that we know on the department, and that also brings up memories when they, they passed away and when they asked for cover. You know, and I'm just, I'm one of the few lucky ones that survived, you know. So I'm just very grateful to uh, to God and all my family and friends uh, that, that were there to help me get through this. Can you can you briefly describe that incident to us, just kind of what, what drew up to that point right there? Sure. So I don't remember the incident at all because I had a traumatic brain injury. And anybody that knows what a traumatic brain injury, I, I lost my memory. Uh, so the, the story that uh, I'm going to tell you was told by the officers that worked there because, you know, uh, I wanted to know what actually happened. I, I don't know what had happened. I actually thought I got shot in the head. So I know I was covering for somebody that night. I was working an off-duty job, and uh, there was three of us working. And what I do remember it was I'm a, I'm a Cowboy fan, and they were playing the uh, New York Giants. It was a Sunday night football game. So I knew they were playing that night. And this night is the deadest night that you can work. There might be 50 people were, uh, going to the, to the restaurant bar uh, just to watch the game and so so we knew it was going to be an easy night. You know, our job is always as officers to de-escalate any type of situation. So they end up calling us to a door, uh, security that work inside. And again, we don't know what's going on inside. Uh, they just they need some type of assistance. So as we're approaching the door, they're asking, escorting some uh, guys out of the club for whatever reason. I come to find out now what it was. One of the guys was an underage drinker. And they had told them numerous times not to be doing it, so that's why they were getting escorted. So as they escort again, you know, our job is to make sure everything's okay and there's nobody assaulted and it's time to go home. So a couple of them, you know, we asked them, hey, where are you parked? And they said, well, in the back. And the, the guy, individual who ran me over said, yeah, well, I violated my vehicle. So the other two officers followed the other gentleman back to the, the parking lot where they were parked because there was more of them. And then they left me with a guy that had valeted his vehicle. You know, you're always taught on or off duty that, you know, you you protect yourself and others. So, you know, I, I wasn't standing in front of the vehicle when it hit me. I was a st- actually, you're, I was standing on the side of the vehicle, probably about six feet away, facing the rear passenger door of the driver. So it was actually on a curb. So when they brought the vehicle up, the valet in, you know, I, I positioned myself in a tactical manner in case he had a gun in the car. I could react. So he gets in his car and closes the door, and I think, well, that's it. He's going to drive off. The next thing that happens is uh, he backs up, and I'm thinking to myself, well, he's going to, he's in an SUV because he hit me with a Denali. Uh, he's going to go pick up his friends that were parked, parked in the back probably because there's also a, uh, a, uh, a turn, and it wasn't unusual for that to happen because it's happened before. So I didn't think too much about it. So when he backed up, the next thing that happened is he pointed the tires towards me, and I already knew what was going to happen. It's one of those things as a, as a first responder, as an officer, when your hairs go stand up in the back of your neck and you get that feeling, it's that sixth sense that you get, you know something's going to happen. You know, I had less than one second to react. Uh, so the only thing that I could think of is I need to jump as high as I can. And at that time, I was doing a lot of CrossFit. And one of the exercises, you do jump boxes. Well, I, I thought I could do a jump box on this Denali. Well, that, obviously that didn't happen. Uh, so I jumped as high as I could because I, my, my back was towards a wall. And if I didn't jump, I knew I was going to get crushed. So as I jumped, uh, my head slammed against the front windshield. Uh, and then I rolled off causing him to, uh, he hit the wall and then causing him to run over me again, putting it in reverse. 
and he ran over my left side of my body. So that was the second time I got hit. And then he had to put in drive to drive away, and then he peeled out on my right leg. Uh, so the injuries I sustained, I, I sustained a traumatic brain injury. I regressed to a fourth grade education level. I lost my cognitive skills. So cognitive skills, uh, if anybody doesn't know what that is, is doing some simple things like opening a bottle of water, uh, writing, reading, using the restroom, tying your tennis shoe, pulling up your zipper from your pants. Those are those, are those type of skills I'm talking about. Uh, partially blind in my right eye, broken nose, all my teeth are fake, severed tongue, uh, a broken neck, broken jaw, my left ear was detached from my head, broken back, uh, all my ribs, ribs were broken, left collapsed lung, my left leg was completely dislocated from its hip, and my right leg, they kind of saved it, it was pretty much shattered. So right now I have a, a, a titanium uh, leg and a fused ankle. So. You also, it scalped you, did it not? Oh yeah, it scalped me. It, uh, they had to. Uh, there's a, there's a funny story behind this, uh, and it, it's it it happened at the hospital, and th this was the account they told me. So anybody that knows my wife, Marcella, I mean she's she's awesome, uh, but she's she's a, has a very strong character and personality, and uh, you know she's very strong will. She's not one of these like oh my god, you know. He's, he's going to die, and she cries. She's, she's not like that. She's very strong. Uh, so when Dr. Eastman, Dr. Eastman is the head of trauma at that time at uh, Parkland, you know, he, she basically told, when she arrived at the hospital, she said, look, he's going to live, but, you know, his head looks like the size of watermelon. You know, uh, we just don't know how bad it is. But in the meantime, we need to put his face back together because of the blood vessels. We only have so much time, so... Uh, we're going to call in these specialists because if we let these interns do it, they're, he's going to look like Frankenstein. <laughs> so uh, she, he says, I need a picture of him, a, a picture of a current picture of Ed. And so she takes out her phone and she scrolls through some pictures and she shows him a picture of Brad Pitt. <laughs> so that'll tell you the sense of humor that she has. Well, that's awesome. They, they got close. I mean, so looking at your, one, one side is yeah, okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, the, the, that is your good side. And yeah, so there's, there's a funny part about that story, but uh, it's a true story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, I, it took me 19 months to recover. I was in the hospital at Parkland for about a month and a half. They moved me across the street to Zale Lipsy. I was there for another month, and that's where I, I started my cognitive therapy and physical therapy initially because I, I was paralyzed. I mean, I was in a wheelchair for 10 months. I couldn't walk at all. And uh, they found a location, and I have to brag about this location. It's called Center for Neural Skills. And right now there's some other officers that there's one there that is a good friend of mine. Uh, he's attending there. But that's basically where they put me back together. Uh, that's where I learned everything, how to read, write, and just become a normal human being again. And if it wasn't for those therapists, uh, Katie, Debbie, uh, Val, uh, there's just so many to name. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be here today. You know, they, they were thinking about retiring me because they just didn't know how bad my injuries were. And, uh, you know, one thing I always learned, especially being at Southeast Patrol, is you never give up and you never tap out. So that was my whole inspiration is just never give up. So you... When you were going through all that, the the physical pain. I, I mean, I've been through some some rehab from knee and neck neck injuries, but nothing like yours. And I can't imagine the pain. There was never a moment that you just 
you just thought, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't get better. I can't get this part of my body to, to recover. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I went through all depression and just like after operate, especially my leg, because you wanted to walk. I was a very active guy. If anybody that knows me, I'm that, I'm like a squirrel, like just everywhere bouncing around. I got ADD. I mean, I just couldn't stand still. And to sit still for 10 months in a wheelchair, man, that's very difficult. And, you know, thinking that once that surgery is over, especially for my eye and my arm and my leg, you know, my eye alone, I've had six surgeries. And you have to be awake for your eye surgery because they, you know, you right. they don't put you to sleep. And then my leg, you know, I had firstly fixed it, get the cast off. I then I have a club foot and, you know, look deformed. And then I have to see another specialist to fix that. And then just, it was just, you know, you go through all the depression. You know, I, I thought about suicide at one time. I said, I felt sorry for myself. I take all this medication. I don't have to worry about this anymore. My family doesn't have to worry about taking me to the doctor and and so on but yeah i mean you just kind of you kind of move on and you get over that that hump but it's difficult where did you uh and i know you briefly touched on it but that's just verbiage where where did you find the strength Ed? where where did you draw your strength uh from in order for you to to recover not only physically but mentally i know emotionally that that destroyed you um but and i know you've got a very strong family too so but uh where did you find that strength what did you lean on well the story i told you earlier um that's the story i don't remember that was a story that was told to me so this is a story that i do remember and this is where i get the the power and the will to move on daily uh so when i'm lying there on the ground uh, and this is again this is what i remember uh i remember uh I knew something bad had happened to me. I just didn't know what. And I, I, thought, I actually thought I was shot in the head because the only thing that I could move and see was my left eye and my right hand. And uh, I kind of wake up and I knew something bad was happening because my breath was knocked out of me. And I touched my head and I could feel my brain. And it felt like a broken, hard-boiled egg. So that's why I thought I got shot in the head. And, and I could hear ambulances and people yelling and screaming. But I knew the... You know the ambulance and officers were coming to my rescue, but I could also I could also sense and feel that I was dying. I could feel my life and my soul leaving my body, and it you know th this is just my opinion. Uh, everybody goes through a, a life death experience, but uh, mine was just so real. Um, as that's happening, I could see my life story pass before me. And man, since I was a, a little kid, as far as I can remember. Growing up on the ranch in Clint, Texas, with my brother and sister and mom and dad. And it was just my whole life story. And it was awesome to see because it touched on memories that I completely forgot about. So as I'm lying there in a pool of blood with my life and soul leaving my body, the next thing that happens is I see my father. And I mention that because at the time of this accident, my dad already had passed. And I was very close to my father. And I was there when he passed away. But one of the, the hardest things that hurt me the most when he passed is I couldn't dream about my dad. And the reason I say that is because dreams are like reality. You know, if anybody who's ever dreamt, you know, it's just like, wow, being in the moment and remembering all those great things. And I was angry at God at that time, you know, for a couple months, but time heals. Now I see my father just the way I remember him with a baseball cap, T-shirt and shorts. And he looks down at me and he says, 
son, get up. And I, I you know, I look up as much as I can, and I, I basically said, Dad, I can't get up. And he does what any father would do. <laughs> he, he tells me, son, he puts his hands on his knees, and he says, son, I need you to get up because you have a, fa a family that loves you and, lo and needs you, and you have friends that love you and need you. So stand up for me, boy. And at that moment, he stood up, and I, I'm not preaching my faith or nothing, but, you know, I'm a believer of God, and he let somebody by, and I remember Jesus Christ standing right next to my dad. And at that moment, I knew it was going to be okay. I then took a deep breath of air, and I remember feeling my life and my soul re-enter my body, and I remember waking up en route to Parkland. So that's what I do remember. So I gather my strength through my family and friends to answer your question, Josh. Obviously, your family was was one of your rock, your biggest rock in, in getting through this. Is there somebody on the department that you recall that that was there for you that stood out the most in, in helping you do this? Yeah, I mean, I I can't. There's so many people out there that I can't thank for just visiting me because you know that that kind of showed how many friends and family that were out there. You know, you take the time to go and see somebody that's in the hospital, you know, because everybody knows what a pain in the butt it is to go park, find parking, uh, and then t just taking the time right. to go and see somebody. My grandmother always told me this, you know who your true friends are when they come and see you at the hospital and at your funeral. Those are your true friends. True. And it was just endless people. Again, I don't remember people visiting me because I don't remember that, that part of my recovery. But I was told it was just non-stop. And, uh, but the two people I really want to wanna, uh, point out is, uh, and he's no longer here. He actually committed suicide. He's, he was a Dallas police officer. He worked at Central. His name was Richard Harding. So Richard Harding and I were classmates. And uh, I was there for him when he, when he went through his divorce and going through the, the struggles he went through in life. And he would come and bring his guitar. And he would actually sing to me. Wow. He was in, in a band. And uh, so he's one person. And the other person is uh, Alan Bull. Uh, Alan Bull, he was a deep nights lieutenant. And he, he, him and his wife, Mindy, would come and, and uh, just spend endless hours. And if it wasn't just with me, spending time with my wife. But, yeah, there's just so many people out there that I can't thank for visiting me. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, I guess the other thing for me would be the uh, recovery process was obviously grueling. Uh, I know you probably don't remember a lot of it, but going from a fourth grade level to where you're at today and losing your cognitive skills, the TBIs, you know, there's a lot of veterans that have been suffering a lot of TBIs, there's a lot of officers, a lot of a lot of people, sports players and everything have been suffering these TBIs and they dramatically uh, change the way you view the world. Um, but I, I, I kind of like to lean into like where are you today? Where are you right now? You know, and uh, just kind of lean into that and then possibly go into the impact this has had on your professional and personal life. But I know right now you're very active. I don't know if your kinesiology degree or anything like that has anything to do with that, but I know you're very active as far as getting out, moving, doing the runs, and 
the bike rides, especially this last one, you went and did uh, carry the load, walked across the U.S. there. And, but where where are you at today? Where is Ed Luan today? Well, I you know I'm I'm here just trying to help as many people as I can. You know, I I try to tell people just try to stay active, be the best best person you can, eat healthy. Uh, mend those relationships that you have with those that you know you've had some type of downfall with, um, and uh, service. You know that's you know anybody that tells me, well, I'm bored, man. I can tell you so many nonprofit uh, foundations that need assistance. They need volunteers, and assist the officer is one of them. Yeah. You know, uh, carry the load is another one. Uh, there's so many uh, locations and places, churches, uh, that just need help. And me being in a community engagement uh, unit now, I see that. Without the volunteers, nothing would get done. And, you know, there's so many good people out there that take the time out of their day to go help uh, an organization. So, How therapeutic is it for you to be in the chairman of the ATO? It, it, it brings self-reward. You know, I wasn't, I never thought that I'd be running such a great uh, organization or, or foundation. Uh, I see, you know, memos come across my desk and emails and text messages about uh, first responders needing assistance or, uh, you know, we just had one that, an Austin police officer that got killed in a, in a traffic accident, if we could help out and Yes, but uh, it's just, it's a rewarding thing because I was going to be one of those numbers. And I knew that uh, Assist the Officer was going to come to my rescue. And they, they actually did. Uh, you know, I want to I brag about this uh, foundation. And this, this is coming from my wife. Uh, when she told me, she goes, hey, you know those, that foundation, ATO? And I said, yeah. He goes, uh, they got their thing, they got their, their, their business in order. In so many words, my wife likes to cuss, but uh, she says because. they got they 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 got their shit together, and and this is everything that they did for us, not just for you, but for us. Yeah. And it was wow, I had no idea. And then the following year, when we lost the the five officers in downtown Dallas, I started volunteering. I wasn't back at work yet, and I came in here just to help out because I was still, you know, I wasn't back to duty. And I, I needed to find a, my purpose, and I didn't find my purpose. And uh, so I started, the only thing I could really do is answer the phones. And they're like, hey, what can I do? Just answer the phones. And then take down numbers. And people want to donate to the families of the officers that got killed. And, and I started seeing the, the ins and outs of this office of all the great work that Randy and Jennifer and Vicky do uh, and everybody on the ATO, ATO board at that time. And I know I wanted to be a part of it. So when they asked me to be a board member, I was, you know, was obviously hands down yes. So I just, you know, I'm very, very lucky and fortunate that I have the board members and an advisory board around me to to build this organization, what it is today. Whenever you were approached to be the ATO chair, how how did that go? It was kind of uh, like, you know, it was I was going through. We had we were fostering three children at that time, oh, wow. and you know I kind of had told them, and it was one of those things. You know, it's I, we were empty nesters. We didn't have kids no more. And when they when they ask you to, can you take care of some kids that you have nothing 
no relationships and you got to build. And we had him for four years. It was probably one of the greatest things in my life that, you know, another struggle. Everybody goes through struggles every day. But, uh, it, again, it helped me be, be a better person, better dad, friend, brother, uncle. And to this day, I still see them. They're back with their mom. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely different, difficult. You know, for those that don't know that everybody here on the ATO board are volunteers. We do not get paid for what we do. And so my days are very long. So on my days off, when I used to have, you know, Wednesdays and Thursdays off, I'd come here and to the office and do the things that needed to be done. And even today, after work, you know, if something needs to be done, a check needs to be taken or a family needs to be visited, that, that's what we do. Take care of our business. Well, we're certainly glad to have you. Um, I have one final question for anybody out there that's struggling with whether it's physical pain or mental pain or any kind of PTSD from this job or, or you know, feeling lost. What would you say to them um, to get through this and, and learn from your experience and and, and to get them across the finish line? Well, first of all, it's okay nowadays to talk to somebody. I've seen psychologists, even to this present date, even after, you know, six, seven years after my incident, is to talk to somebody. Uh, don't let all those emotions build up. Uh, one of the other deals I ask, tell people is find your, your calling, your purpose. Uh, I finally found my purpose when I was doing Care of the Load. I was, uh, it was day eight, and I'm on some back country road in Alabama, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning carrying a U.S. flag, carrying a backpack and a GPS, and I'm by myself. And I started doing a lot of self-reflecting. And, and you know, I'm an emotional guy now uh, just because I, I value life a, a lot more different now. And uh, I started thinking, why did God keep me on this earth? And I finally realized it. After six years being alive, it was helping people with service. And that has made even my journey more um, memorable because um, of what I'm doing with the engagement unit and with the ATO. So find your purpose and then also is never give up. Never give up. All of us go through struggles in life. Some are harder than others. Uh, seek help. Ask for advice. Seek guidance. And you're not alone in this. Trust me. Uh, there's some people that have it even worse. So if you think you have it bad, somebody even has it worse. So just never give up and uh, always have hope. Ed, you kind of touched on something, and, and it's, uh, I don't know the right terminology for it or the right phrase, but um, the main thing is to remember that uh, for all first responders is, is we're really not alone. I, I know there's been a set st stigma within our profession that, uh, we carry a lot of shit to the grave. A lot of stuff goes to the grave with us. And, uh, and there's a lot of stigma in the sense that, you know, you don't talk about things because it makes you very sensitive, uh, or the appearance thereof. You know, we show up on a scene and you're there to control it. You're there to find the answers. You're there to help. Uh, but you go home with a, with a, just a pile of, baggage sometimes and uh we really don't have anywhere else to offload these things and you know and i think that's the big thing that that probably needs to change most of all and i think it has started to but you know just to remember that we are never alone a and you touched on that 
and B, that uh, there there is a lot of help out there. And you telling your story right now, I mean, this this type of stuff right here begins to break the stigma. I mean, what's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that you guys had me uh, on the air today, you know, about, again, like you said, not you're, you're not alone in this. All of us go through different struggles, whatever it is. It could be divorce, uh, child care issues, relationships, and there's always help. You know, one of the visions when I took over, was uh, to add more counselors for the assist the officer. We have free counseling for all first responders. That includes the fire department. You know, a lot of people think just cops, but the fire, they, they see a lot of stuff. They're usually the first ones to res- to arrive at, a tr- at an accident where several people are killed, you know. Uh, other things that I've brought to the ATO is equine therapy with her horses. You know, I actually attended a, an event where uh, Dr. T, uh, and it was it was therapeutic to be brushing horses. You know, I thought I was going to be the Lone Ranger riding these horses, but that's not what it's about. Uh, and touching those feelings that you have deep inside. And also canine therapy. You know, uh, there's people that, I love dogs, I love animals, period. But, you know, those are the little things that the ATO is bringing on board, and then just having this podcast, you know, it's 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 something great that Joe and Josh and Randy are doing, and I want to thank all three of you for, for doing this, getting it done. Oh, thank you for coming on. Good. Well, folks, we've reached the uh, behind-the-curtain uh, the segment where we give a peek of the Assist the Officer Foundation's upcoming events. And uh, just the basic projects that we've been working on. Uh, first coming up here is going to be the Freedom Run on September 11th. And it is the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. Uh, the race will start on the Ronald Kirk Pedestrian Bridge at Trinity Groves. There will be a one-mile fun run at 8.30, followed by the 5K, which will begin at 8.30 a.m. All proceeds will benefit Assist the Officer Foundation. Uh, next, we're proud to announce our Bags for Badges presented by the spouses behind the badge. I think this is one of our biggest fundraisers, is it not, next it, to the golf tournament? It is. Yeah, so uh, this is our designer purse bingo, and it will be held on November 20th at 7 p.m. at the Hilton Lincoln Center. Um, they're looking for a lot of models, so if any of you all out there listening uh, dare to come out, I think I think Joe mentioned you you got to be fit. I don't know. If that's uh, <laughs> No, even if you think you're fit, you can come on out. Yeah, if you think you're fit. Come on out, uh, and uh, you'll uh, walk the line and take a purse out there, and you'll have all these women yelling for you. But uh, in, uh, uh, So we're asking for any first responders interested in modeling the purses for the ladies, but that's a big event. All proceeds will go to Assist the Officer Foundation. For more information, please email bagsforbadges at gmail.com or vickywhite at vwhite at dallaspa.org. Ed, I think we're going to just go ahead and wrap this up and take it home. Um, I can't thank you enough for letting me be a part of the ATO family and also giving the opportunity to do something crazy like this in this podcast to give everybody a voice to, for people to hear your story, to hear many other first responder stories. And also I want to get people on here that support us for years and years to tell why they support us. Because everybody's got a story and everybody's got a reason uh, of why they support law enforcement and also a reason why they actually do this crazy job. 
Uh, again, I want to thank you for being on and thank you for all your support and everything you do. No, thank you, guys. Thanks, Ed. I'll never give up on you.